listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is Dan Frayne, an Australian cinematographer who, like so many filmmakers, started out in his earlier career making a number of shorts and music videos, while all the time honing and crafting and learning the art of his passion to become an experienced cinematographer. In some ways, Dan had a head start, coming from a background of stills photography, and then in 2010 came his breakout feature film, Wasted on the Young, distributed by Paramount and directed by Ben Lucas, a drama thriller about a high school party that goes dangerously off the rails. Dan has done a number of television series, also a couple of documentaries, and then his second feature film in 2017 called Other Life, also directed by Ben Lucas, which is a crime mystery sci-fi. Other Life is currently screening on Netflix. Dan, welcome to Shoot It Now. G'day, Craig. Nice to be here. Nice to have you on, mate. So uh, let's go back a little bit and ask the obvious question. What ignited the fire and the passion to make Dan Frayne want to become a cinematographer? Good question. <laughs> um, look, it was a strange one. I was a stills photographer working in Sydney in um, advertising, shooting a lot of like portrait sort of ad work, some architectural stuff. And a friend of mine, an actor, very good friend of mine, he was at me for ages saying, look, you know, your, your eye's really good. You should, you should come and get into cinematography and we can, we can shoot some stuff together. You, could, you know, we can make some short films. And I really didn't have, um, I didn't have that film spark in me at that time. Anyway, we, we shot this very inventive film at a 24-hour uh, edit-in-camera film festival. Now, I had never shot any moving pictures before, but I did have a really good grasp around framing and lighting. I had no idea about coverage, of course. Anyway, we <laughs> we got to <laughs> three o'clock in the morning and um, and to edit in camera, this was back in the days of tape, uh, it meant that you had to, no, you couldn't use any editing software. You had to film a shot. If you didn't like it, you'd rewind the tape and go again. And then once you were happy with the take, stop the camera and then you line up your next shot and record on camera. So we, that's how we made this film. And it, like three o'clock in the morning, we, we played back what we'd shot over the last sort of 15 hours or something. And I just remember looking at it going, this is the most amazing thing I've ever worked on. This is it. I, I had that moment where I was like, this is what I'm going to do now for the rest of my life. And that was in 2001. And since then, I've just, uh, yeah, I've just been, I've just been, at it and, and focus my whole career on cinematography and filmmaking. Still do shoot stills. Um, and in the world of advertising in Australia anyway, there's been quite a lot of crossover with me shooting both the cinematography side of a, of a commercial and also the, uh, the, the stills for point of sale for buses and for, for billboards. It's been an interesting symbiotic relationship between stills photography and cinematography. Isn't it funny? You had that epiphany, that that moment that completely lit the fuse, and you've been in it ever since. A lot of people can't quite grasp that 
whole concept yeah. of once you're in filmmaking, this this it's like a drug. You just can't get out of it. It's a web that's entangled a thousand different ways around you. That's exactly right. And I actually honestly thank thank my uh, lucky stars every day that that I was able to find my absolute passion and the thing that I knew I was going to do forever because a lot of people never have that moment. And um, I don't take it for granted. I really do thank my lucky stars that, that I found it. Yeah, and most of your work has probably been digital or have you had the chance to work on film, be it 16 millimeter? Yeah, like I've shot, I shot some quite a bit of 16. Uh, some commercials I shot on 35 millimeter, but it would be fair to say I was a very early adapter of digital technology. Um, and coming from the stills world, where I was very slow to move into digital, it actually hurt my stills career because I I saw digital come, and at the time film was way superior. But it it, it didn't take long for for the digital stills cameras to to really take hold. Uh, and I was I was behind the eight ball. So when I saw digital coming in cinema technology, I, I jumped on jumped on the bandwagon very very quickly. Uh, I think I, 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 I'm not sure if there's a digital camera I haven't used or format everything from Red Ones to Panavision Genesis to Vipers. They're not even around anymore. <laughs> um, uh, Panasonic, uh, oh God, what were they? Panasonic Vericams. And cinematographers have their own style, although interestingly, not all cinematographers want that label. However, if I didn't know you, Dan, and had never mm. seen Wasted on the Young and Other Life and was given 10 films to watch, which had eight different cinematographers and two films by the same cinematographer, that's you, I'd mm. feel pretty confident I'd be able to separate out your two films because of your cinematic style. So do yeah. you believe a cinematographer has their own style? Oh, God. Yes, I do. And it's it's something that I've always kind of struggled with, I suppose, because um, I've never really wanted to have a particular style, although the two films that I've made or shot have both had a very similar style. Um, that it also a lot a big attributing part to that is the fact that both of those films were made with the, with the same director, and so we together collectively share a very similar cinematic style, which is I guess classified as somewhat surrealistic realism would be a way to kind of put it. Like tend to like to have scenes in which the characters are in an in. In reality, but they they step into another worldly space. Both of those films have uh, a very a very big part uh, of of the visual language is attributing to that. <laughs> I, I I like to try new things, and I, after those two films, the my, my more recent work has been documentary, which have, which has been you know a very large uh, step to the right away from that style. I, I like to think that I'm pretty adaptable. Um, most directors that I've worked with would say the same. That a director said to me the other day, he said, "You're the Swiss Army pocket knife of cinematographers." 
That's not a bad compliment. That's pretty good. Having yeah. a look at your uh, second film, Other Life, there'll, there'll be some cinematographers that are listening to this podcast. There'll be camera operators uh, that are wanting to come up through the ranks to to be a cinematographer. They'll want to know things like uh, the lens kits and the camera yep. setup that you used uh, for Other Life. So how about yep. just sort of uh, telling sure. us a little bit about that? Sure. Other Life was shot on a red dragon camera. Uh, that's a 6K red, uh, and then the sensor on that camera is a little bit larger than Super 35. We used a set of Cook Prime lenses on that film primarily. I think the kit was something like a, oh, let me get this right, we had a 14, I think we had a 14, 16, 20, 24, uh, 32, 40, 50, and I think a 75 and like a hundred. Uh, that that film was framed in 240, and pretty sure we ended up um, uh, framing to a 5.5k image. Just enables just a little bit of um, wriggle room for um, steady cam, and there's quite a bit of like Movi work in that film. So Movi's are Movi's are great. I do like to um, have the ability to reframe them a little bit, just so that you can. Just so you can just like you know squeeze a bit to the left, bit to the right, and if you've if you've got a shot with a, with a few bounces, you can you can stabilize. So, did you have no zoom on other life? Uh, we did have a zoom. We had a uh, twenty four to two ninety Optimo zoom. Uh, we didn't use it very much, to be fair to say. I do like zooms, but I think look, it's it's strange. I tend to use zooms on TV where. You just have to be that little bit faster. Your, your, your schedules are a little bit tighter. When I shoot films, I really do like to work with a single camera approach. And TV, you're often you're just about, well, in Australia anyway, you just about nearly always have to shoot multicam. And with multicam, it's nice to have, you know, two cameras on Zoom so you can just be really quick, really quick. I love the, back to Other Life, I loved the beautiful opening water sequence uh, to the film. Always yeah. uh, a bit of a nightmare to shoot underwater. How, how did you plan that out for that sequence? Oh, that's a tricky one. So we had, we, uh, that was shot at, a, at an island off the coast of Perth called Rocknest Island, which is a, a very well-known um, scuba and snorkeling spot. We spent a day wrecking the, over there and I had my underwater cinematographer and myself and the director, we went, we, we had snorkels and we, we actually went and we, we, we had a look around. We just, we went, that looks like a good spot. He, the, the underwater guy that I used, he, he had a bit of local knowledge too. So he knew all the good, the good, the good spots around Rottnest Island. Um, and once we chose them, then we, we then went into production mode of, you know, doing a, a, a we had obviously had underwater talent who were free divers, um, which meant you know we we needed to uh, have safety, and we had um, a second unit director on those days who was there with a safety oper uh, safety person, couple of boats. I guess the biggest sort of uh, one of the biggest dangers of underwater work in the open ocean is, is other boats, and that's that's the big one that we 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 really needed to. Uh, have our safety guys looking out for other boats in the area. The other thing, the, the other thing that we 
you safety can't fix is that th- those waters like Rottnest Island and WA is has a huge white pointer shark population. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, so. Again, like our, I think our safety safety briefing was like if you see any fins, everyone comes out of the water. And was that was that your actual actress in the water or a body double? No, that was a body double. Okay. Yeah. And the tracking shot of Wren first going into the office, always fun to see an environment like office space held together in a one-shot. While that looks incredibly easy and fluent, the opposite is true. Yeah, that was a tricky one. Uh, it also, it's a one that comes from um, outside to inside. So there's, there's, there's exposure changing going on in that shot as, as she opens the door. Hiding shadows is a big one, and probably the biggest one for for one shot scenes is is just getting everyone uh, performing at the level you need them to be. You know, mm. like you'll you'll be doing a shot, and Jessica DeGale, who played Ren, she, like she she nailed it every time. But just trying to get like all of the moving pieces in the background, like oh that guy went slightly too late, he has to go earlier. That girl, she looked at the camera. We can't have that. That guy in the background, he looks like he's working on something, but he's going to come out a bit further from that laptop. So you constantly just shoot the take and then revise, and then the second, uh, first AD will go in and adjust accordingly. Um, and I think it took us, I reckon we got it on take six, which is about right for, for those sort of shots, for those one-ons. Yeah, so take take six, but in the blocking, how, how long did the blocking process take to work out all all of the moves? And you're yeah. right with the you're right with the actors because it's not it's not just actually you uh, hitting your mark on time. It's actually looking natural um, and, and and rather not yeah. just sort of clicking into it, sort of a little yeah. bit uh, mechanical like a robot. So that's another thing that uh, directors have always got to try and work work out along with the cine. So. Uh, yeah. The blocking, it, how long did the blocking take? Ben and myself, we're, we're fastidious about pre-production. So we, um, we timed it out ourselves with a, um, with a uh, I think we just had an intern, and we timed it out with a 7D um, a few weeks earlier in pre-production. And so we did all the moves and we figured out that what we needed where. So we, we already had a, a really good idea of how the shot was going to work. Uh, we had times so we knew how long it was going to be. And then on the day, the blocking happened, uh, it was pretty quick. Um, it was, I think we probably blocked in about 15 to 20 minutes and then we started running running takes. And yeah. so six, six to every take and every reset, I would say, is probably, you know, seven minutes between a take and a reset. So six, that's 40. So it took us an hour from beginning to end to, 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 get, the, to get it shot. Yeah, they're just they're just really tricky moving parts, and and you're right. The the, the big thing is uh, this is where you, where you really lean heavily on your cast. So you've got cast, and they're acting, they're doing their thing, and you need them to be on, and they've got to be a hundred percent. But at the same time, that's very technical acting. You know, like I'm talking to Jess, and I'm like, when you open the door, make sure you throw it open just enough so I can slide in. You move to the right at this stage so I can see behind you. Then when you get halfway in, you cut to the left. I'll cut around to the right to catch you. And then when you sit, make sure you you know your eyes hit this and you hit that and you do that. And so it's a lot of things for an actor to 
remember that's technical all the while just trying to be in character. So that's where really good talent gets you a long way down the road. The film had to explain the setup of the story quite early on, and the structure was explained economically in terms of what Wren was up to. Often a director will say, this is how we're going to explain this, and sometimes it's not that easy for the cinematographer to execute story information. So, Dan, how difficult was that arc of shots that you put together very close to the start of the film to weave story into the viewer's mindset of what was happening? Yeah, look, it's really tricky because you don't want to just go through the second line out of the filmmaker's handbook of exposition because people see that coming a mile away. So we're always trying to find an inventive way to map out the world for the audience because it is a very high concept film. There's a lot to understand in terms of how the tech works, where the characters are in the story and their challenges that they're overcoming, personal and also within uh, the creation of the drug that they were trying to, to create. So there's a lot of moving parts getting that right. And we knew very early on, as is with any film, with any TV show, like I think you've probably got about seven minutes to hook your audience. And if you don't get them in those seven minutes, people just, bam, you're done. So those seven minutes were always going to be paramount to getting the, the, the idea, the concept across. I, w- I would like to say it was easy. <laughs> it, it wasn't. Um, we ended up having to pick up some scenes um, very early on in the film. Uh, there's a there's a scene with Ren, the protagonist, with um, the FDA getting getting uh, the other life drug approved, and that was a scene that we didn't shoot, but we picked up about four months later. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was in the original script. It got pulled out when we were sort of trimming the fat, trying to trying to get this thing in on, on time and on, on the money. After sort of three months of editing, it, it was, it was, it was uh, required for us to, to fly the actor back in and, and sh- we shot that scene in an office in Sydney. It's very difficult for myself and for the director and for the editor to know if you sort of get lost in, in, in whether, whether it's any good or not because you, we get to see it so many times and we never get to see it with fresh eyes. And so the process that, that I've always been a part of is, um, uh, you know, is, is, is test screenings to audiences that know how to look at a test screening because a test screening doesn't have the visual effects plugged in. It's got placeholders for that stuff. Um, so you really need uh, a trusted, you know, uh, intelligent film audience to be able to give you um, quantifiable feedback to where the film's at. The one thing that we kept coming back with was um, uh, that people were, people were, were getting lost in the first 20 minutes. It took them, it, it took them too long to, to, to be able to understand all the moving parts to the story. And yeah, Ben, the director was, he was like, well, we, we just have to go back to the original script. That, that, was, that was why it was there. That's what we need. And once we got that in, with a little bit of a tweak from the edit, it, the, the beginning of the film just uh, started to sing beautifully. It's it's good that you and Ben 
obviously open to uh, having to go back and reshoot a lot of a lot of yeah. filmmakers they they say well you know we're out of money we're going to have to just do it a different way and it's really like putting a sticky plaster over a gaping wound it it, it is so much mm-hmm. worthwhile to go back reshoot what you need bring it in mm-hmm. because often when you talk about something like in this particular case uh, you wanted to go back and, and reshoot that that whole office uh, interview mm. with Ren. Mm, now, mm. you know what you're wanting, but you really don't know just how much of a difference it makes until you bring it into the edit. Then when it mm. comes into the edit, it's like a hundred times bigger than what you thought it may be. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, from doing the, the those two feature films, Ben and I, we, yeah, we always unpack the work and how did we go, what did we learn, what would we do differently? And one thing that we would definitely do differently would be to have in the shooting schedule uh, have a period of probably three days of pickup shooting that you would, you would and th- this can be tricky with cast, that's the only thing I'd say. But if it's possible, if you're filming in, say, New Zealand or Australia and you're using local cast, I would, I would always say allow your editor six weeks and schedule three days of pickup shooting. And some scenes that that's going to be impossible due to location and size and action and all the rest of it. But like the, the other part of that would be if you've built sets, hang, hold on to small bits of sets like the walls and whatnot. Quite a few times, even on smaller projects, I've found that, you know, all you might need is just like, okay, what we what we need to get out of this trouble right here is we just need like uh, a shot of her on her phone to her father saying X, Y, Z, shit, we don't have that location anymore, but we, we did build part of that location. We do have those walls or, you know, you might just have to get a flat and, and, and build a small set for, for some pickup shooting. I think it's a, I think it's very very good information to to build that into the schedule. Mm. At the moment, I've got a film in post, and we've gone back a couple of times to do pickups. And without those pickups, the information is just not flowing. And good information, good point. You know, first seven minutes, mm. you've got to get yeah. that information out within the first five minutes, yeah. uh, seven minutes max. And if it's yeah. not working, then you're just going to have to figure it out another way. Another thing that I wanted to talk about with, with your second film, the, the snowy mountain sequence, beautiful location, really well executed, aesthetically pleasing to watch, nice uh, snowboard spray across the lens. Uh, mm-hmm. But from a cinematographer's point of view, quite a complex shot list again to pull off. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you were able to execute that. Uh, well, yeah, the interesting thing is we, we our talent at that stage was on a TV show in America and she, she had a very small window where we could uh, pick up that shooting. So um, we ended up shooting it in, uh, God, what's the place? Uh, Aspen. We ended up shooting wow. in, in America, in Aspen, and we, we plotted out the shots we needed. Again, we, we did all our storyboarding and figured out what we needed and went to work. We, uh, we, I, I lent heavily on um, a film crew that we found over there who specialise in um, uh, skiing cinematography. And a lot of those shots were like literally like a guy on skis holding a movie with a camera. 
we got the best drone guy we could in Aspen to, to help us film and we just put it together. We shot, we shot all that stuff in, I think it was shot in two days, two very big days. I'm so glad that I asked you that question because I was thinking, where in Australia is this? Is this in Australia somewhere? So, wow, I would not have picked Aspen and, and yeah. the story behind it, uh, having a couple of real pro guys, uh, one to actually get on skis with a camera. Uh, that yeah. kind of answers a lot, of, a lot of the questions I had around some of those shots, thinking, okay, how did he do this? Yeah, and a, and a very good drone pilot and good drone setup. Like, you know, for anyone that's ever shot in the snow before, your batteries just, they last about a, a quarter of the time than they would under normal temperatures. And drones are the same. Like, the batteries get chewed up very quickly. The air's thinner. You know, the, the drones don't stick in the air quite as well. So if you are ever filming mountain sequences and you you know you're hanging hanging reds off of drones can't vouch more highly enough for, for getting yourself the best drone operators you possibly can so we're talking about other life and if you're wondering where you can see it it's currently screening on netflix uh, dan another sequence that i'd like to talk to you mm -hmm. about is the the box that Rin mm -hmm. was confined to it's an it's another really good example of just how interesting a good cinematographer can make a simple space translate into a well-crafted sequence again uh, it looks simple enough, but many, many early conversations I would predict between you and the director, mm. then, then the circle becomes a little bit bigger. The conversation with your production designer, art department, mm. gaffer, camera crew, uh, mm. lots of pre-planning. That's um, mm. Talk us through that, the execution of that mm. box sequence. Yeah, the, the box, the, uh, the cell, was. Um, it took us a really long time to figure out what that was going to be because essentially in the film our character finds herself in a futuristic box that is inside your mind and it's basically the brief was if you were to be put into a, a cell a prison cell and it could be any shape any size anywhere what is it and that question took us a long time to figure out we went through everything from spherical cells to like white rooms to like traditional cells to you know futuristic cells made of mirrored walls and all sorts of stuff in the end we end up ended up building a box and the box we built to scale to size uh, and there was one major feature and that is that the the person inside the cell was communicated to through um a computer and then in the screenplay, that computer is just a small little screen. We decided that why not make the whole wall of that box the screen? And so uh, that's what we did. And we, we ended up building an LED wall that was, I don't know, like maybe I think the cell was about two metres by two metres at one end and might have been three metres long. So it's really small, really tight. We built it in a way that we could um, remove walls so I could push the camera in on certain angles. It had a lid on the top which could be pulled off so we could pull a crane in from on top of the box. And it was it was up, it was we built it a few meters oh, about a meter off the ground so I could get a camera in underneath the box. Because I think screen time wise, there might be about 
eight minutes of the film is inside this thing. So it's, a, it, it's quite a lot of screen time and it's terrifying for, for the character. And it made for a very interesting um, lighting dynamic because I did have this like one wall that could just light the entire space. It wasn't without its tricks. The the LED wall that we that we used had all sorts of crazy um, flicker issues at frame rates, and it was uh, yeah, it it, 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 was a, it, it was it was a real tricky thing. Um, we shot in there three days, and I mean, Other Life was made on a micro budget. It was very very small budget, and so we shot three days on the schedule. And then we shot over another three weekends. We shot a whole bunch of like smaller scenes that was just myself, the director, a focus puller and the actor. And we shot, um, so we shot another, I guess, it, I think we were doing every, we were shooting six day weeks. So we shot kind of a total of six days to get to get those seven or eight minutes on screen. The timer was was great to see that, that sort of, uh, sort of a heart pulse to the whole sequence. As you mentioned, it's eight minutes. You've got to be able to carry that cinematically mm-hmm. uh, along for those eight minutes, which I felt that uh, you and Ben really did carry that off pretty well. Um, how many shooting days did you have uh, for the film? Okay, so we had 24 days on the schedule, and then we were shooting, uh, we would have shot another five Saturdays or Sundays off the schedule. So what we were doing is, um, you know, we were just doing what we could with a very, very small crew with myself, the director, a focus puller and the actor on, on, on weekends just to try to like fill in the gaps. There's a lot of like the protagonist is a, essentially a coder. So there's a, a lot of screens that needed to be shot, a lot of like fingers on keyboards, um, real fiddly stuff. Like if anyone out there is filmed any like sort of close up macro work of code or words on computer screens that like we've done a lot of it and it's it's really tricky you get more rang like you wouldn't believe you you almost have to throw the image just slightly out of focus we needed some um you know a lot of different diopters and then all sorts of tricky stuff and 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 the thing is is when you when you're filming a schedule like a normal shooting schedule with a crew of like you know 40 or 50 people or, standing there working, you don't really want to be blowing your time on a on a macro shot, which could be picked up on a weekend. So so that that was the approach we had to be able to get through the schedule. Let's talk a little bit about directors. You obviously have a good working relationship with Ben Lucas, having shot two features with him, and he obviously trusts your ability and I as a cinematographer. What's the comfort level when working with a director for the second time, do you think? Oh, very, very comfortable. Um, our first film was uh, Wasted on the Young, and we we had a very good experience on that film. We had a bit more money on that film than we had on Other Life, uh, so we had a bit more time. We were able to set up our pre-production space as we like. We have this sort of running... Uh, running um, method i suppose you call it of how we like to set up pre-production uh, and that is to we, we like to have a, a nice big room that myself ben the director the production designer and the first ad we like to share the space together because when you're in pre-production they're pretty much the four departments that make or break what is possible so 
the way we tend to work is we will um, cover the walls with photography and art that are inspired in terms of how the look of the film will, will be. Um, and we do that between the production designer, myself and Ben. And then we, we then go and start the process of uh, doing reconnaissance, recce, scouting. We then bring those images and put those on the walls. And, and in the end, you just end up with this massive, like, patchwork of art, uh, location pics, casting photos on the wall. And you just start moving things around. And by the time you're ready to make your film, your film's already made in that room. Uh, and then it's just a just a just a um, uh, then it's just executing, you know. And the the reason we like to have the first AD there is so that when we look at schedule and we go, this is what we want to do, we then do floor plans. We put them up, and the first AD might go, look, you're dreaming. We've only got I've got half a day in there for you for that. So then we'll go back to the drawing board and go, well, look, if we've only got half a day, maybe we need to find a more succinct. Uh, way to get through this scene and so that's the process and and that's that's the way to do it you know um plan your shoot shoot your plan mm. and uh, apart from ben uh, do you yeah. find that some directors don't always articulate their vision to a cinematographer or perhaps they are unable to express their intention of what the film's objective is yeah that's the Ben's a rare, a rare breed because he's got a really good language of film and very great understanding of storytelling. Every director is a bit different and some would require more input from the cinematographer. Ben and I work quite harmoniously. We just, we just sort of speak the same visual language. Um, whereas other directors, they, they may just rely more heavily on a, on a cine or less some are like, this is exactly the way it's going to look, blah, blah, blah. This is it. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, whereas others will yeah. be like, they'll come up to me and they'll be, and they'll be like, well, I don't really know. This is kind of what's going on. And then I'll have a much heavier hand in terms of how the scene will be covered and how it will look. Yeah, so that that means that you as a cinematographer, you have to, with some directors, connect the dots. Other times there will be vision from the director, as you mentioned, but the director is sometimes having trouble explaining and making sense of it for anyone else to understand. Like they might have it in their head, but sometimes yeah. that that visual articulation of what the film is can be quite difficult to understand if the director mm -hmm. is not explaining it in a, in a manner or a way that uh, a cinematographer might understand the vision. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's uh, it's just a complete interpretation, and the way I overcome that is um, I just I just start throwing ideas around because like sometimes the director will be like uh, I just don't really know, and I'm like okay, what about this? No, not that. Okay, what about this? Mm, no, not that. All right, how about this? Yeah, that. Great. Bam. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's just that's that's all you've got to do. It's like just. Um, some people don't know what they like until they see it. Other people are very good at pre-visualising how they want things to look. And there's no right or wrong way. It's just how people get things across the line. What takes the most time is lighting. And with a film like Other Life, it has a very distinctive lighting palette. Now, people are aware of colour palette, of course, but maybe not so used to the term lighting palette. 
And in watching the film, that definitely struck me as something that you would have meticulously planned for in laying the foundation of creating the aesthetic lighting. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm a big, big, big worker of um, floor plans. So, with every with every space that we uh, that, that, that we recce or that we built, I would have the production designer give me a floor plan, and then I would go to work and figure out where I was going to put put my lights. Talk with my gaffer. Uh, I tend to like to light through windows and use practicals like you know the the. the a large portion of this film had a lot of people working around computers and whatnot. So we had a lot of like little light panels and like little tiny things that we could slip inside um, computers that were going to light people's faces. And there was, I, I, I'm a very big believer in lighting in pools of light. So I would create like, uh, you know, a pool here, a pool there, a pool there. And often to do that, you're either lighting through windows or lighting from the ceiling and and trimming and, and hiding lights. So there's a, there's a lot more work to do that up front. The uh, benefit of it is that once you're lit, you can pretty much just let your characters exist in the space and then everything's just tweaking then. So it takes, uh, like for example, in Other Life, like the, uh, the office where the Other Life people all work, you know, the, the, the workshop space, it took us, I'd say we spent at least half a day, maybe even a f- uh, probably half a day, half a day bump in and then a half day pre-lighting that space. Um, but then it meant that we could come in on the very next shoot day and literally just turn on the lights and, you know, the ADs like, when are you going to be ready, Dan? I'm like, oh, we're ready. Let's start. Like 15 minutes and we were ready to start shooting. So that's a big difference between, I guess, like, film and commercials on commercials you never get that you've got to you've got to do it all in the one day um so it's a bit of a it's people think that commercial cinematographers are slow i would actually say that that may have been the case in the 90s but now with commercial budgets the way they are you've you've got to be very slick and very fast For those of you listening to the podcast thinking about starting your career as a cinematographer Obviously, in the early stages, you will need to align yourself with a director who may be a friend, maybe a friend of a friend, and you start shooting some small, low-key shorts. Low-key means a couple of actors, one or two locations, and a small crew. But the main point here, and I stress this, is the work of quality. There are so many people making shorts that the only way to pop your head up from the sandpit is going to be the quality of work through the lens of the camera. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would say that adding to that, quality is one thing. And I like I think that you need to you need to think of your short films the same way you would a, a feature or a large television show. Like you, you need them to pop. They need to stand out from the crowd because short films is a very congested space, more so now than ever before. And trying to get your short into a film festival where it can be seen, you really, really, really need to give uh, give it every possible chance uh, that, that it will get into a, a decent festival or a bunch of festivals. The other thing I would say is that with short films, 
uh, I think that you really need to be inventive with um, the the storytelling. You know, find 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 a different way to tell the same story. You know, and I mean, like if that could be technique, um, but it could just be interesting story as well. And yeah, like good God, I mean, like n- numerous filmmakers that have uh, that have that have leaped into their careers off the back of one short. Um, Neil Blomkamp is one that springs to mind. He's the director of uh, District 9, the feature film, and a bunch of other things. But the thing that got him there was um, a short film he made, I think in about 2000, and I want to say five, six, seven, called uh, Alive in Joburg. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it because it's bloody amazing. Uh, and that's a short film set in Johannesburg. He plays the tyrannical racist racist storyline that exists in that city already but he, he he twists it and it's it's racism against aliens and it is really well made and after that one short film he then went on to make district nine and halo which i'm not sure if it ever got made but he's, he's a very good director and that's one short film that has pushed that that one director into that in, into that world and there's many, many, many others. So if you get it right, that's what can happen. And talking of shorts, you had one called Marry Me, a lovely, well-crafted short, tremendous acting from the kids, the sort of short that had a little bit of everything. And we're going to put this up in the show notes so that you can watch it. Cute story. It's a great, it's a great little short, and as I say, we'll put that up in the uh, in the show show notes. So, what is next for Dan? What's your next project? Are you able to tell us? Yeah. So, look, um, last year I, I shot a feature doco called The Portal, which is a documentary about meditation. And off the back of that documentary, uh, I've just started filming. Uh, a documentary for Amazon. The working title currently is Road to Glory, and it's a a documentary that is um, essentially on the inside of the AFL football industry. And I am covering the uh, South Australian footballer as as he makes his way through a football season that's obviously been heavily affected by uh, coronavirus, um, with all the very strange insights of how that's affected everything. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's it, it's it's very different for me because it's a you know very small crew. It's myself, a sound person, and a and a story producer, director, and it's 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 just a different way of working. And I, I I like it. I'm I'm normally used to working on much larger film sets with big crew, but it's it's very refreshing to just have a camera just on your shoulder and just being able to shoot coverage reactive to the situation. Well, Dan, it's been a great little insight into your journey on the road to becoming a cinematographer. And thank you so much for coming on to shoot it now. Thanks so much, Craig. Thank you. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.